Welcome to Tech Talk. Bye. CDT. Welcome to CDT's Tech Talk, where we dish on tech and internet policy, while also explaining what these policies mean to our daily lives. I'm Brian Wozolowski, and it is time to talk tech. In this episode, we will welcome Laura and Jens from our CDT team in Brussels, and they're going to preview the very busy year ahead in the EU. Then we'll be talking about how New York City is leading the way in addressing issues of fairness, accountability, and transparency when it comes to using automated decision-making technologies. Yes, when governments deploy AI to make civic decisions, the public should be very informed and engaged. In our last episode, we previewed the year ahead in tech and internet policy with a focus on the U.S., and in this episode, it's all about Europe. Many of the same issues are being debated on both sides of the Atlantic, but the policy approaches, courses of action, and public pressures are very different. CDT, of course, has a wonderful team in Brussels that is actively engaging on the full range of policy debates, including copyright, privacy, free expression, and much more. Jens Henrik Jepsen and Laura Blanco from that team in Brussels are our guests this week. Welcome, Jens and Laura. Thank you, Brian. Hi, Brian. Hello. They're on the phone, so apologies to our listeners. They're going to do the best to deal with with me on this one. So let me just kick it off in a broad way. Um, You know, what are the biggest challenges uh, of 2018? What are going to be the biggest debates happening uh, in Europe? Yeah, thanks, Brian. Uh, So we begin uh, with uh, uh, data protection and privacy, which is, of course, one of CDT's core areas of focus. And in Europe, uh, 2018 is going to be a busy year on this front. So first of all, in May of this year, the new European data protection law comes into force. It's called the General uh, Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR. It's going to replace existing rules dating from 1995. And so while it maintains and updates those rules, it also imposes new and stringent obligations on companies that collect and store and share personal data. And it gives new rights to people whose data is processed. And uh, also it's important to note that the GDPR will apply to any processing of data of people residing in the EU, also if that processing is done by companies that do not have a presence in the EU, such as an app developer, for example. Um, uh, Another important change is enforcement. Uh, The new uh, regulation gives European regulators powers uh, to uh, fine companies at a scale that uh, we have not seen so far. So today, uh, European data protection authorities can impose administrative fines uh, in the range of a few hundred thousand euros, but with GDPR, penalties for companies in breach can go as high as 4% of global turnover for the gravest type of infringements. Wow, that's a big uh, jump. <laughs> It is, it is, and so uh, right now, both companies and regulators are working overtime uh, uh, to get ready for the new rules. Um, It's very important for companies to be able to demonstrate and document that they are putting in place all of the safeguards and and, and processes uh, and structures uh, to be able to cope with the new rules. 
and of course the regulators are uh, the regulators are uh, creating a new European Data Protection Board, uh, which will be set up to ensure that the rules are applied in a consistent way across the EU. That should be of uh, of, uh, of interest to companies who, uh, if the system works, uh, will be able to rely on, on on a consistent line of application, which has not necessarily been the case so far. Okay. And what else is going on? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, further on, on uh, privacy and data protection, uh, there's a new law on its way, in addition to the GDPR. So right now, legislators in the EU are working on a piece of legislation which will complement and particularize the GDPR in the field of electronic communications. It's going to succeed existing e-privacy rules from 2002. And the main intention of the new uh, e-privacy regulation is to apply the s similar rules to all kinds of electronic communications, uh, including uh, what's known as uh, OTT services, over-the-top services, so Skype and WhatsApp and other mm -hmm. internet-based messaging and, and communication services. Uh, the existing rules only cover traditional uh, telecom services. And so uh, the Commission published a draft in, in last year, around this time. Uh, European Parliament has amended it uh, uh, and finished its work in October 2017. And now member states are working on a common position. So this work will take, uh, uh, we think, uh, uh, a good deal of the year. Mm. Um, and uh, CDT participates in these discussions. Uh, uh, we uh, would like the outcome to be as effective as, as possible in terms of, of uh, protecting communications confidentiality. We're, we're pushing for rules, affirmative rules uh, that allow uh, recognize uh, the uh, right of providers and users to uh, apply uh, encryption uh, to their communications, for example. Right. We're also uh, working on finding good uh, rules on uh, uh, controlling the kinds of tracking practices in, for example, the ad tech industry uh, to the extent that those practices are causing uh, people to lose uh, trust and confidence in uh, in using online services. So there's a, there's a, this, this, these rules have potential uh, to uh, address that situation uh, in conjunction with the GDPR. Okay. Yeah. So so I want what I so I wanted to talk now about uh, uh, law enforcement and encryption. Oh, this yeah. will be brief. It's your show, yeah, and you can be as, as not brief as you want. <laughs> right, okay. So, further, further in, the, in the area of data protection, uh, there is a lot of work going on in the law enforcement context. Um, so, in the EU, security and law enforcement are big political priorities, and EU leaders are taking many initiatives to beef up law enforcement cooperation among member states. And in the tech policy space, two initiatives are particularly important. One is access to electronic evidence by law enforcement authorities. Mm. Uh, the the uh, European Commission is going to publish draft legislation that will enable law enforcement agencies from one EU member state to request data uh, from communications and cloud providers 
in other EU member states and even uh, probably uh, from providers that are not based in Europe at all but whose services are used by Europeans. Um, so the argument here is that traditional MLAT systems are too slow and, and inefficient for investigations to be effective. Um, I mean, a MLATs being those treaties between countries that kind of govern correct. the request, yes. This is exactly right, Brian. And, um, and, and in fact, some of the issues in play here are the same uh, as in the uh, Microsoft uh, Island case that is uh, uh, that is before the U.S. Supreme Court right now, and where where CDT uh, filed an amicus brief uh, recently. So we'll be we'll be pushing for a strong privacy and procedural safeguards and court oversight, and we want to make sure that there are no conflicts of law with with the, either the U.S. or other jurisdictions. And then mm -hmm. I'll just finish uh, with uh, encryption. Um, this is an ongoing debate. There is uh, a lot of pressure from the law enforcement community and from some member state governments for legislation that uh, would enable them to access encrypted communications and data. Uh, so we push back on this uh, together with other groups and with the tech companies. Uh, and so far, the Commission has uh, concluded that it will not move towards back doors or key escrow or general weakening, weakening of security. Uh, That's a good development. That's very good. Uh, it is indeed. It is indeed. Uh, and, and there is good recognition that uh, a high level of security is, uh, is essential for, uh, for the digital economy and society and for commerce and communications and so on. But at the same time, uh, uh, law enforcement uh, are going to strengthen their capabilities in terms of accessing devices and data that are encrypted. So there is going to be an ongoing discussion about uh, law enforcement hacking or government hacking sure. and the rules that should govern those practices. Great. So now to Laura. Sorry, I was premature in that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Yes. So um, another of the biggest tech policy debates in Europe is in the field of online content moderation. Uh, politicians are particularly concerned about terrorist content, hate speech, uh, copyright infringement, and most recently, of course, the whole issue of uh, fake news. Um, this is obviously not only a debate that is taking place uh, in Europe, but it's barely the start of the year, and here we are seeing new initiatives. Uh, for example, there are plans in uh, pr uh, France to legislate to combat fake news. Mm. And more generally, there is the ongoing pressure from European legislators for um, Internet platforms to be more proactive um, in monitoring, filtering, and uh, taking down undesirable, possibly illegal content at a much, much uh, faster pace. Um, some legislators are even suggesting time frames of 120 minutes. Um, of course, this is um, impossible to assess in, in this um, unrealistic time frame what content is legal and what is illegal. Uh, but more importantly, um, this push for companies to act as de facto censors of online expression are a cause of great concern for us um, sure. due to the potential implications on free speech. 
Um, just an example, uh, the Commission's voluntary code of conduct on hate speech incentivizes companies to take down more and more content, regardless of whether it is illegal. So um, generally, we find this a very dangerous approach. Yeah, no, it sounds dangerous. So let's, let's go a little bit deeper on that, too. I mean, you mentioned this a bit with, like, fake news. But certainly, you know, here in the U.S. and obviously in the EU as well, you know, tech companies, you know, kind of the, the darlings of the past have been receiving a little bit of uh, or a lot more negative coverage. Um, do you think it's going to continue in 2018? And do you think there's going to be more policies like some of the ones that you just mentioned coming out because of that? Yes, uh, I think it's safe to say this trend of putting online platforms in the spotlight will definitely continue this year. And um, while there are real concerns about content online and on the use of social media, it is harder to work out good solutions to these problems. And um, we agree that with scale comes responsibility towards users and um, society at large. Uh, but in Europe, the issues that some initiatives have un um, unintended consequences for free expression and access to, to information. Um, the most obvious example at the moment being the uh, German social media law, uh, also known as the NetzDG. Uh, this uh, law entered into force in October last year and is being implemented by platforms as of January, uh, 1st of January this year. Um, just for background information, the NetzDG applies to social media companies and other providers with over 2 million registered users in Germany ah, okay. that host third-party content. And it basically basically threatens them with fines of up to 50 million euro if they fail to remove what is known as obviously illegal speech within 24 hours of it being reported. Now, um, this is clearly creating a lot of pressure on these platforms to censor speech. And uh, to be on the safe side, these companies are likely to take down content that is perhaps offensive, but not necessarily sure. illegal. Um, in fact, uh, there have already been examples at the beginning of the year uh, of satirical content uh, being taken down from social media platforms. And then um, another example of this type of legislation is the draft directive on copyright in the digital single market, DSM. Uh, this piece of legislation, if it would enter into force, would oblige internet intermediaries that host third-party content to use filtering technologies to monitor and prevent the upload of content that may infringe copyright. So overall, the Commission really uh, wants to target uh, through their uh, legislation the largest content sharing uh, platforms such as YouTube, but an, an unintended consequence would be um, that it would affect just all about all types of uh, platforms, including um, SMEs. Wow. So, I mean, you know, in your hat as an advocate, what what would you tell politicians they should actually be doing here, uh, as opposed to these these kind of troubling approaches that we're seeing? Well, uh, for example, talking uh, about the filtering technology and the automated content analysis tools. There seems to be uh, a lack of understanding at technical level on what uh, this type of technology can or cannot do. 
uh, policymakers here seem to consider it as a silver, silver bullet to remove undesirable content. Mm. But our, as our colleagues concluded last year in the paper Mixed Messages, uh, this type of technology has many limi- uh, limitations. Uh, so companies can be, for one, can be more uh, transparent about how their uh, platforms handle content challenges and be open about the limitations of the technical tools um, that exist. Uh, we think that this would help policymakers understand that there's no one-size-fits-all solution. And um, in this respect, we're quite hopeful uh, in the whole fake news debate here in Europe because the Commission recently set up an expert group and is uh, requesting input from stakeholders across the board in a public consultation before deciding on any potential policy action. So we definitely encourage this type of multi-stakeholder discussion. and then maybe finally um, a more comprehensive policy solution could be for the EU to produce guidance on notice and action under the existing e-commerce directive. This would maintain the principle of limited liability for intermediaries in that directive while making clear what actions the, inter- um, the intermediaries should take and the transparency and appeal processes they should have in place. Um, Actually, several leading members of the European Parliament have recently um, suggested this way forward as an approach that would deal effectively with online content problems, but in a way that respects the fundamental right to free speech and the rule of law. So we are, of course, um, following the same line in, in, in that sense. And those would be some some ideas from our side. Well, I hope they're listening to you then. Those are great ideas. And that paper that you just referenced, Mixed Messages, uh, that looks into automated content moderation is available at cdt.org if people want to check it out. Um, How about I go back to Jens for this last question here. Jens, you know, in addition to all you and Laura have already talked about, what are some of the, the emerging or new issues that we might expect to pop this year that might not be on anyone's radar just yet? Well, <clears throat> the, um, the debate around uh, artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning and automation, robotics, etc., uh, that debate is really picking up uh, this year. Uh, so politicians and, and uh, officials are asking questions about the impact of these uh, technolo- technological developments uh, on on people and on society in, in, in different ways. So the Commission is working on a and sort of an overarching communication uh, sometime uh, in the first half of 2018 uh, to kind of frame its overall thinking uh, on the subject. Uh, there are many different uh, policy questions to be looked at, um, including how do you make sure that Europe keeps up with other regions on developing these technologies, such as, as China and the US, of course. Mm-hmm. How do you make sure that Europeans have the right skills to deploy the technologies and use them? Um, and how do we manage uh, the various uh, changes in the labor market that can be expected? Um, Further, the the Commission is looking into questions about liability for various types of uh, autonomous systems. Oh, wow. One example is uh, self-driving cars. Um, Another is uh, um, the uh, liability and uh, uh, responsibilities associated with 
the Internet of Things, uh, smart cities, etc. Um, who's responsible when a piece of software uh, results in uh, significant damage to people or property? Uh, these questions are not necessarily uh, clearly thought out at the moment. Uh, so the Commission is looking at the regulatory framework um, uh, to see whether uh, any sort of legislative uh, change is necessary. This is actually something that uh, our colleague uh, Benjamin Dean has been looking at um, in in a recent paper that, uh, or in a forthcoming paper. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, it'll be a great paper, and that might be out as early as next week. Um, no, and these are tough, tough questions. Well, Jens and Laura, thank you so much for joining Tech Talk. Obviously, you have a very, very busy year ahead. Uh, keep up with the work, and it's always great to, to have such great colleagues on the other side of the Atlantic. And we'll see you. I'm going to do a shameless plug here. We'll see you in person in March for our wonderful annual event, Tech Prom. So people interested in coming to CDT's grand fundraising dinner, Another thing to do, you can meet Jens and Laura in person there. If that's not a draw, I don't know what is. <laughs> Thank you for joining Jens and Thank Laura. You very much, Brian. <laughs> Thank you. Looking forward. It's the concrete jungle where dreams are made of. And it's also a leader in tackling the complex issues around the ethical use of decision-making algorithms by governments. Yes, when governments deploy automated decision-making systems for public programs or policies, the stakes are heightened and the public should be engaged. To help with this, the New York City Council has taken the proactive steps of forming a task force that will explore fairness, accountability, and transparency in the varied automated decision-making systems operated by the city. This includes systems that assign children to public schools, identify potential buildings for fire inspections, and rate the effectiveness of teachers. Pretty big deals. Our guest today is CDT's very own Natasha Duarte, who submitted written testimony to the New York City Council Committee on Technology about just how the city could best govern its use of algorithms to make civic decisions. Welcome, Natasha. Thanks, Brian. So in your testimony, I thought it started off really strong. You stated that decisions made by algorithms are not neutral. What do you mean by that? Um, so the algorithm itself might be math, but automated decision-making systems are designed by humans to solve human problems. And so that means they incorporate the values of their creators. So if I want to create a hiring algorithm to screen employees, um, I'm going to make decisions about what I'm looking for in an employee. Um, and so those uh those ideas are going to be incorporated into the system. And they also uh, learn about the world, machine learning models learn about the world from the data on which they're trained. Um, so whatever values or we might say biases are in the data, um, underrepresentations, overrepresentations, um, you know, potential biases of the people who've collected the data or the environment it was collected in, um, you know, whatever values are represented in those data sets will also be incorporated into the model. Um, and we see that with, uh, for example, pre-trial risk scoring algorithms that um, mm. try to give a risk score to people who are um, up for, for bail or parole. Um, and uh, in those, we see that uh, because there is um, racial bias in policing data, um, uh, black people are 
are arrested um, proportionately more often than white people, um, we see that racial bias also reflected in the risk scores where um, black accused people are more likely to be mistakenly identified as high risk and white people Mm. more likely to be mistakenly identified as low risk. Oh, interesting. So go a little bit deeper. I mean, you've already kind of touched on this a little bit because that's one example. But, you know, in your testimony, you really focused on why when governments deploy these systems, and certainly what you just talked about is a government use of it, why is it more problematic than when, say, you know, an organization or, you know, just kind of any company uses it? Um, So the decisions that governments make are more likely to impact people's rights, liberties, um, access to vital services and benefits like Medicaid, food assistance, education, and of course access to justice. Um, And so while we may still be grappling with um, what companies' responsibilities are in the commercial space when they use automated decision-making, it's pretty clear that when governments make decisions using automation, just as when they make decisions that affect people's rights without using automation, um, that they really need to constrain those systems carefully so that they comply with the law and so that they carry out good government policy um, and that they aren't discriminatory or or aren't improperly taking away people's benefits. And they also need to be um, transparent and open to the public for scrutiny and auditing to make sure that they are performing as intended and not causing disparate impacts. Um, And they also need to include clear and effective ways for people to appeal those decisions. Um, So when it comes to government decisions, um, we have, uh, you know, due process rights and we um, need to be able to hold the government accountable for those decisions. And that is um, much more clear in the public sector uh, context than in the private sector context. Okay. So you, you've also touched on this a bit, but maybe go a little bit deeper on this, like why vulnerable and minority populations are, are so often the ones disadvantaged by these automated systems? Are there examples be- beyond the ones that you've shared? Yeah. So um, one major area where automation has been um, replacing human decision makers for several years is in the um, distribution, monitoring, um, and sometimes cancellation of government benefits like um, health care assistance Mm. and food assistance um, and child welfare systems and unemployment benefits. Um, And also a big area where automation is growing is criminal justice. And so um, the people who rely on access to those benefits and to the criminal justice system for their survival and their freedom um, are in a position of being more vulnerable to the decisions those systems make. Um, And another reason is, as I mentioned, the potential for disparate impacts. Um, So uh, minority groups are more likely to be disproportionately harmed by um, biased decision-making or incorrect automated decision-making because um, they might be underrepresented in the data that the system is learning from, or they might be overrepresented, um, as in the criminal justice system, uh, in a way that that can um, bias the decisions uh, against them. 
That makes a lot of sense. So obviously, governments are going to want to do this. New York City is a great example of that. They they already have a few automated systems. You kind of touched on this a bit earlier. But if you were to give the top, you know, top three things, if a government wants to start to use these systems, what should they do? What's the checklist they should go through before they deploy any AI or automated decision making tools? I actually have three things. Oh yes, look at that. <laughs> uh, this isn't my first time on the podcast. <laughs> I haven't given you a trick question yet, though. So. <laughs> um, so the first thing is on the policy level. Um, and I should say, you know, a lot of the things that governments need to think about when doing this are not necessarily super technical things. Um, there are so many uh, non-technical, just sort of policy-making considerations that need to go into making sure these systems are fair. And so the first thing is to make policies that serve the public interest and then build or implement systems that actually work to carry out those policies. Um, so, for example, um, you know, it's one thing to say we're going to uh, introduce automation so that we have um, we can you know cut back on human labor um, so we make decisions more efficiently or uh, maybe we're doing it because we want to um, you know detect fraud to you know try and see if we can get some people off of certain benefits um, but what we really want is for um, governments to be engaging in uh, thoughtful proactive, policies that are in the public interest where automation could actually uh, potentially make things better for everyone. So, for example, uh, you know, reducing racial disparities in hiring. A lot of um, proponents of automated decision making in these contexts say, you know, we can actually use algorithms to be less biased than humans um, and cut back on racial disparities. Now, I am not um, taking the position that that is um, true or that is really promising or that we can actually do that. But if that is indeed the goal, um, then the systems that governments implement uh, need to be ones where um, they actually ac accomplish those goals. And so they need to develop tests to test those systems to make sure not only that they're you know, accurate, making the right decisions mm -hmm. about people based on the data, but that they actually measurably do um, cut back on discrimination or improve conditions in the way that um, that they should be. Um, so, so number one is, you know, make good policies. It's <laughs> <laughs> a big number one. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is big. <laughs> uh, number two is involve the public. Hold hearings, uh, reach out to communities for input, and continually seek the input from communities about how these systems are working for people on the ground. Um, because it's important that um, we, you know, these systems are not designed, you know, by some uh, engineer at a vendor company that um, doesn't really understand how they're going to work on the ground, you know, um, governing. Uh, at the local level is messy. There are a lot of factors that um, that vendors may not be considering. Every city is different. The needs mm -hmm. of every city is different. Um, and the needs of every community is different. And so um, community members who are going to be impacted in these systems need to be involved every step of the way from the beginning of, um, you know, developing a plan for procuring these technologies through continually checking in to make sure that they're working properly and uh, not harming communities. 
Um, and the third thing is to um, use open, scrutable systems. So systems that can be scrutinized by the public and by outside experts um, and where people can understand why decisions are being made about them and then challenge those decisions, appeal them if they think that they're wrong. Um, and this may require some changes in the ways that um, government agencies procure technology or services. Um, so often um, with these algorithms, uh, they, you know, agencies will uh, procure them from, from a vendor, a company, um, and the company will uh, protect the actual um, algorithm through trade secrets. Um, and that is problematic because it may preclude um, the public from having access to how the government is making these vital mm. decisions about them and from specific people who may be harmed by the decision or may be subject to incorrect decisions because the system had the wrong information about them or, or just got it wrong, um, might be limited in how well they can appeal the system. Um, and in fact, uh, the actual employees inside the government agency may be limited in how much they know about the system and how decisions were made. Um, so, so cities really need to look at how they're procuring these things and um, thinking about what um, additional burdens they can actually put on vendors to make sure that um, the decision-making process and reasoning is open um, and that the systems are tested properly and are actually working. Well, that's great. I'm sure a lot of these systems are not inexpensive, so you might as well put a few more burdens on the vendors. <laughs> Yeah. to uh, make sure that they uh, seal that deal. Right. So you touched on this a little bit earlier, too, the role of citizens. I mean, as just a kind of a, a normal citizen, some of this can sound really intimidating, not accessible, like you may not even know that decisions are being made about you in an automated manner. How should just a normal person, you know, normal yeah. citizen get involved with this? What advice would you have to them? Um, so right now, my best advice is if you're concerned or want to learn more about how your um, local or state government is using automated decision-making systems, um, you know, make some noise and seek out answers in whatever way you can. So specifically in New York, um, now that the mayor's office has to put together this task force to look into these systems, now would be a great time to actually tweet at the mayor um, and uh, call 311 and uh, you know, file a complaint if you have an issue or seek out more information about these systems. Um, of course, a major barrier to seeking out that information or to, you know, um, complaining about it is that um, people may not know where automation is, is being used. Um, and so I am hopeful that this task force and hopefully other task force like it um, in other places if, if they adopt similar measures um, will help at least break down some of that barrier where people don't even know these systems are being used. And so um, I think that alone is a, a good enough reason to, to do this type of thing. Cool. So yeah, what's what's your greatest hope that, I mean, if obviously citizen engagement, but what's the biggest hope you have for New York City's task force? And um, are you going to be a part of that? Uh, I hope to be a part of it. So um, awesome. The, <laughs> the author you just want more trips to New York, don't you? I see how this works. <laughs> I love that Acela train. Um, 
So, so the author of the bill, Councilmember James Vaca, um, has recommended CDT, along with other organizations, um, be represented on the task force. It's ultimately up to the mayor's office to um, create that task force. Uh, so we hope to be on it, but if we're not, we will be very involved in making sure, um, sh- you know, that oversight of the task force is happening. We'll be showing up to those oversight hearings. Um, and so one of my uh, biggest hopes for this task force is that it does increase public engagement and public involvement in the decisions around um implementing these technologies and these analytics systems because, as I said, the decisions they make um, acutely impact people's livelihoods um, and their their access to the things they need. Um, and every city is different and every community is different and has different needs and mm-hmm. um, people should be involved in major government decision making. Um, you know, when government, when um, laws and rules are written there are typically hearings and people show up and voice their concerns and agencies have to respond to those concerns and so the same should be the case when those that policy is made or implemented by algorithms that makes sense well it looks like new york city could be a model if they get this right hopefully they will you know listen to this podcast hear your thoughtful and wise comments and put you right on that committee or someone from cdt thanks so much for joining tech talk natasha thank you that's it for this episode of tech talk if you want to follow all the great work that our eu team is doing check out their twitter account cdteu also the eu team has an amazing monthly e-newsletter if you want to get on their email list and i'm sure you do send laura an email at laura.cdt.org i'm brian wazlowski thanks so much for listening